0: You may be seated. So great to worship with you again today. And today, I'm. I just want to um, send. Make an observation. That sometimes when we encounter a truth from God, it is so countercultural that we feel like what we're hearing is wrong. We respond to it physically, mentally, and sometimes emotionally. But what I want to suggest today is that you should always allow that to be a trigger for you to dive in and think critically about what our culture says to us to be true versus what God says for us to be true. And so I want you to keep that in mind today as as I talk about something that is really critical if we're going to fulfill the purpose of our lives, to be all that God has created us and called us to be. Now, let me, I need some participation. Do you guys know what the mirror on the passenger side of your car says at the bottom? Do you know what it says? I'm going to show you a picture. You could be wrong. Here's here's what it says: Objects in mirror are closer than they appear. Now, not only does it say that, it screams it in all caps. Do you notice that? Now, but the question is: Do you know why it says that? The mirror on your passenger side is different from the one on the driver's side because those mirrors are convex. That means that they are slightly bowed out in the middle middle, because the driver needs a larger field of vision than the normal flat mirror would provide. But that bowing distorts things, causing items to actually look smaller than they really are and therefore they look as though they are farther away than they actually are. Now, that warning is critical because it reminds the driver that what they see is not really what they get. And driving decisions need to be based upon what is and not what they appear to be. Now, I bring that up because it's my contention that for us to regain our saltiness, to be effective in being all that God has called us to be, we actually need a warning etched on the bathroom mirror of our lives that will provide us with a sense of reality about who we are. Now the truth is, That most of us look into those mirrors hoping to find confirmation for what we want to be true. To steal a line from the cultural icon Ron Burgundy, I want to see proof that I am kind of a big deal. That's what I'm looking for. We want to see someone who has made it or someone who is well on the way to making it. But if we're going to remain salty and become the salt of the earth as God desires, we need a right-sizing message on our mirror reminding us that objects in mirror are smaller than they appear. What we're looking at is actually less Than we are hoping for. Because here's the truth no matter how big a deal we are in our own eyes, or how big a deal the world tells us we are, the truth is that by design, we are smaller than we care to admit. And in our quest to be salty again, accepting our inadequacy, our insufficiency, is critical. Now do you remember how we started this series? We looked at a verse a teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 verse 13. And here's what he said, "You, those of you in the kingdom of God, are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's actually no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, and trampled underfoot salt if it loses its saltiness can't be can't do what it was created to do so last week we discussed a few key truths from that passage and I just want to remind you of our conclusions first we learned that as followers of Jesus we are the salt of the earth that is who we are that is our identity Second, we learned that the community of salt, those in the body of Christ, is distinguished. It's different from the world that we are called to serve. We are different from everyone else who does not name Jesus as Lord. Third, regaining our salt, if we lose our witness or compromise our witness, regaining our saltiness is a work of God, but it requires our cooperation. And finally, we learn that we must be vigilant about maintaining that distinctiveness, the difference between the world and the community of salt. And if we aren't vigilant about it, we will certainly lose our saltiness and forfeit our ability to fulfill our purpose. Now, one of the primary ways that we maintain that distinction the differences between us and the world around us, is to remember and actually cherish the fact that objects in the mirror are smaller than they appear or than we hope they are. See, we, we struggle because we are programmed by our culture. We struggle against the embarrassing notion that we are smaller or somehow inadequate or insufficient. But one of the great paradoxes of our faith is that acknowledging and accepting inherent insignificance is the path to significance. Acknowledging, accepting it, delighting in insignificance is a path to to significance. As James wrote, humble yourselves before the Lord, And he will lift you up. And he can lift you up higher than you could ever lift yourself. So embracing our insufficiency is the key to sufficiency. The way to becoming kind of a big deal is to admit that we are not. Now, why is that? Well, the Apostle Paul learned this lesson in a painful way. He was wrestling with God, begging God to remove a thorn in his side. It was some kind of physical malady that he dealt with. And and he felt like he would be more effective if he were stronger. But God taught him a lesson that he recorded. He wrote down for the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. I want you to listen to what he wrote. But he said to me, that is, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul concluded... I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in the things that the world tells me to avoid in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Why? Because here's what he learned. This is the truth. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak and recognize it and embrace it and delight in it, then I am strong. See, here's what happens. Delighting in our weakness makes space for God's strength. Our insufficiency paves the way for the empowering sufficiency of God. And the only way we experience it is when we own our insufficiency. Yet naturally, and by training, reinforcement from the teachers of our culture, we resist weakness and insufficiency. We, we want to be strong and self-sufficient because in our world, that's the way to become a big deal. You make it on your terms. You do it for yourself. But our world is mistaken. It's wrong. And it's a mistake that goes all the way back to the beginning. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, we're going to be looking at Scriptures in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but before we get there, I want you to understand that a distortion took place in the Garden of Eden that affects the way that we look at ourselves. It it affects what we see in the mirror, or at least what we long to see. In the garden, evil was present. We're not real sure how it got there, but we know that it showed up in the guise of a serpent. And the Bible refers to the source of evil, all evil, as Satan. The word Satan means adversary or challenger. That's what his name means, and it's an apt moniker for him because he actually showed up in the garden and challenged Adam and Eve to see things differently. He tried to establish a distortion of reality for them. Now, before he slithered into the picture, the first man and woman saw God for what he truly was, a benevolent creator who took good care of them by providing all of their needs. According to the creation story, he met their need for companionship with himself and through each other. And he provided food for them. And he provided a purpose. They were to work the garden and take care of things. And while God loved them and wanted to be connected with them, it was also important to maintain a distinction between God and humankind. See, he was the creator, and they were the created. He is the creator, and we are the created. And in order to constantly listen closely, where we're going now, you're going to have to think, sit up straight, and think today, okay? In order to constantly remind them of that distinction, which was so critical for their right view of themselves, there was one rule. One rule. And why did he give them a rule? It was a, it was. To establish his authority. To remind them he was the creator and they were not. That they were supposed to follow him as the creator God. It was a rule that reminded them who he was and who they were. Now look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 16. And let's let's find out what the rule was. And the Lord commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Free. You are free indeed. But you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The implication is that prior to eating from the tree, they would not Here was the deal, any tree you see, you can eat from it, except one. And you can't eat from that tree, because it will give you complete knowledge of good and evil. Up to that point in time, their knowledge was incomplete. Now, this prohibition was a protective boundary that was established by God, and served two purposes, at least two purposes. First, it protected them from the pain and the trials of knowing too much. Okay, they didn't need complete knowledge of good and evil in the garden. In this case, ignorance was bliss. Second, that law protected the memory of their place. It protected the memory of who they were. God was the creator, and they were the created. He was God, and they were not. If they ate the fruit of that tree in hopes of erasing that distinction or becoming like God, then another reminder, a more painful reminder of who they really were, would be introduced into the equation. First, they had the rule that reminded them that he was God and they were not. If they broke the rule, then another reminder would follow. And do you know what it was? If you eat from the fruit of that tree, you will certainly die. The reminder was death. Their own mortality would be a constant reminder of the difference between them and their eternal, immortal God, death reminds us is a sure and certain reminder that we are not God. Now, the adversary understood that. As a fallen angel who had rebelled against God, he wanted to wreak chaos and destruction in the garden, in the kingdom that he was cast out of. So he comes along in the form of a serpent with a shrewd plan to distort their perspective of reality. Look at Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was, he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, did God, did he really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden." Did he say that? The temptation was simple, but brilliantly crafted. He malevolently wanted them to question the goodness of their benevolent Creator. So with eye rolls, this is essentially what he was asking. Did God, the God you naively trust, did did he put restrictions on you? Did he say no to something? Why would he do that? What is he keeping from you? Is he trying to keep you in your place? His designs were to shame them for their dependence upon God. That was the idea. It was shameful to be dependent, to be somehow insufficient. And therefore, he was creating the humiliating perspective of inadequacy. That's what he wanted. He wanted it. He wanted The call to humility to be humiliating. Look how Eve responded in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, Well, you know, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die did did god say you must not touch it in genesis chapter 2 verse 16 see eve replies with the truth sort of She acknowledges that they can't eat from the tree. That much was crystal clear. But then in a foreshadowing of the problem of religion, which is man's attempt to please God or to become acceptable to God, which he already is, she added to the prohibition saying, if we so much as touch that tree, we will die. But that's not what God said. not what he said at all. He said there was no eating from the tree, but there was no mention of touching it. What do we learn about them from that addition, that amendment to God's rule? That Adam and Eve weren't clinging to the truth of God's declaration? That they felt like somehow there, there must be more. It revealed that they were open. That something was missing. And Satan stepped in to exploit that weakness. Satan responded... You know why he told you not to eat from that tree, don't you? Because if you do, you will be like God. And God, who is actually small-minded and petty, this is Satan's accusation, that God, who is actually small-minded and petty, doesn't want you to rise to his level. But you could. And he said, You know what? You you won't die if you eat that fruit. You'll actually begin to live. That's what'll happen. That's that's where you'll find freedom. You know why? Because then you'll be like God, you'll know what He knows. And because he's so petty, he couldn't stand that about you. In other words, if you eat the fruit, you'll be kind of a big deal. And you can only reach your potential if you seize control of your own destiny. If you do things God's way... He's always going to keep you down. Remember, this is Satan talking, the adversary who's challenging the wisdom of God's rule. He's saying that the no's from God are designed to keep you in your place, to prevent you from being really who you are. And you won't die if you know what God knows. Only then will you be free to be yourself. See, he's not protecting you with that rule. He's really just protecting himself and his position. That was the temptation. Don't let God keep you down. Of of course, what's ironic, and what the serpent would have never mentioned... Is that they were already like God. Did you know that? You remember when the Trinity met in council before the creation of humankind? Here, here's what they talked about: Genesis 1:26 and 27. This is what God said. Let us make mankind in our image, in our, say it, likeness. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creation that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in his likeness. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. They were created in the image of God, in his likeness. Not to know everything that God knows, but to be like him in character. They were already like God. But Satan wasn't going to point that out. The temptation was to be equal to God. To know everything that God knows. Or more specifically, the temptation was to be a God in their own lives. To be God. To call their own shots. To make their own way. To ensure that By their own hard work, they were kind of a big deal. Because if they were more like God, they would control their own destiny. And the fact is, they did. Because by making the choice to fall to that temptation, their destiny was sealed. See, they took the bait. They ate the fruit in hopes of becoming a big deal. And what we have to understand is that delusional hope still holds sway today. The world believes indeed indoctrinates us to the idea that if we work hard and do all the right things, we can make something of ourselves. That we can rise above our place and be like God. Their their choice to eat the fruit has lasting consequences. Since they broke that one rule the one rule that reminded them that they were not God, another reminder took its place. Death. We now know that we are not God because we die. The scripture says it is appointed once for a man to die and then to face God, judgment. We live and we die. A vivid reminder that we are mortal and not immortal. That we are created and not the creator. It is a vivid reminder that we are not God. And that's okay. It's exactly where we need to be. See, just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden that was created for their best life. When we fall to the same scheme of our enemy and try to make ourselves like God, we get pushed out of our sweet spot, away from dependence upon our benevolent Creator and into the desert of independence where we lose ourselves, where we lose our saltiness, where our true identity is compromised. As human beings, we are created in the image of God, in His likeness, and we find our sweet spot when and only when we delight in weakness and dependence. When we recognize that we can't get where we want to go or be who we want to be without faith in God. Did you know that we are the crown jewels of creation? We're the apple of God's eye. Scripture says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Does that mean we're God? No. No. But it means we're right where we need to be. To experience the best life. We are gloriously dependent upon our Creator who delights in meeting our needs. And when we stay in our lane and acknowledge our position and celebrate it, then God lifts us up. When we are weak, then, as Paul said, we are strong. Listen, there is no shame Independence. There's no shame for us in being dependent upon our Creator. There's actually a great power and potential in dependence. Our enemy wants us to despise our smallness and view it as an embarrassment. He, he wants us... To turn it into an embittering humiliation. But we need to celebrate our dependence upon God. Because humble dependence. Lifts us up. You remember what Paul wrote. His power. Is made perfect. In weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. When we are weak, he is strong. Before Jesus said those in the kingdom of God are the salt of the earth, he he made a stunning observation. Listen what he said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, happy are those who embrace the fact that they are not enough. Happy are those who recognize that we are not God. They're in their sweet spot. And salty is their salt. Rebecca Pippert wrote, These words, she said, here lies the greatest surprise in all of history. Ever since the entry of sin into the world, humanity has been on a mad course to try and become God, while God had decided from the beginning of time to become human. Human. You know what happened? when Jesus stepped out of eternity and into time and landed in the form of a dependent baby, he made all humanity hallowed. Sacred is God's creation of humankind. We are all of us significant because we're created in the image of God to be like God in character. Our significance is in no way diminished because of what we don't know. It is actually enhanced because it causes us to trust God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus became one of us to show us the way to life. His humanity was the perfect restoration of humanity in the garden because he was without sin In his perfection, Jesus reset the proper order of things and showed that dependence upon God is what ultimately leads to significance, which he called abundant life, the life you've always dreamed of. He conquered death. He conquered death. And in doing so, showed that dependence upon God leads to life. His death on the cross provided those who trust Him with eternal life and the promise of significance through abundant life, which is more than a big deal. It makes us more than we could ever ask or imagine. But listen, that possibility is only ours through faith. It, it comes from accepting our limitations and embracing complete dependence upon God in his love, in his goodness, and the sacrifice of His Son. Faith in Jesus makes us live forever with God. He conquered death in the grave. And accepting our inadequacy and trusting Christ to save us from death is the only way to life. You know the truth about looking in the mirror and seeing something bigger than the scripture says we are. The truth is that no matter how significant we perceive ourselves to be, the truth is we know. We know something's missing. That there's still a hunger, still a desire for more. No matter how much we have, or how much we've achieved. There's still a fear of death. There's still the recognition of inadequacy. Somehow we're not enough. No matter what the world tells us. And to that, our creator says, good, I can work with that. It's exactly where I want you to be. Because it makes you turn away from yourself and turn to him for answers. His power is made perfect In our weakness. When you place your faith in Jesus, you're you're acknowledging, okay, you're right. There's something missing. And God sent His Son to step in and fill the void. And once you've placed your faith in Jesus and you've accepted. your inadequacy. You're in the perfect position. You are now qualified to be all that God created you to be. To living a wonderfully salty life that pursues His glory and makes you significant. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we, we know the world tells us we've got to do everything we can to eliminate any hint of insufficiency, any hint of weakness. Forgive us for falling for that lie. Thank you, Lord, for loving us right where we are. Thank you for the reminder that we aren't you and that we need you. And Lord, if there are those in this room today that haven't placed their faith in Jesus and found their significance in you, I pray that today would be the day that what has been distorted by our enemy is made clear. As we've looked in the mirror of your word, thank you for Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith and the grantor of our significance. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would ceaselessly humble ourselves and trust that you will lift us up. Make us salty again, Lord, for your glory in the expansion of your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.